The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning, church. As always, it's a pleasure and a joy to spend this time with you. Consider God's word together. This morning, we are going to be in Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 to 19, and we'll be considering uh, the seventh and final trumpet. So 11, Revelation 11, 15 to 19, we're actually concluding this large set of visions that begin all the way in Revelation 4. So it's an exciting text. Revelation 11, verses 15 to 19. Let's hear God's word together. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the word of God. Let's pray, ask for help. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you communicate to us through your word, the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the best and most ultimate communication, your very son, the Lord Jesus, whom you sent to us and for us. Uh, we thank you that he is king and that he will return for us at this uh, seventh trumpet and that this is our great hope. So Lord, we pray now as we look at your word that your will would be done, your work would be done, and everyone who hears, help us see you, trust you, love you, uh, conform us to the image of Jesus, we pray. We pray it in his name, amen. So as we consider this seventh and final trumpet, we ask, what is our hope? What is your hope? Have you ever had that painful experience of a hope that was precious to you crumbling right before your eyes? What is your deepest hope? Do you have a hope that's trustworthy? a safe investment for your heart that will get you through hard times that will never let you down. Well, the day was August 22nd, 1741. And for George Frederick Handel, life was very hard. He had recently experienced bankruptcy, depression, and a stroke. So he began to compose regarding his great hope. He wrote for just over three weeks, skipping many meals, hardly leaving his room. And in just 24 days, he emerged with 260 pages of music and one of the greatest achievements of musical history. 
he had composed his Messiah, an oratorio on Jesus' life and its meaning. And uh, if you've listened to that piece, and I think you should, a major highlight of it is this famous hallelujah chorus, which takes its inspiration from a verse in our text today. So in that song, things kind of quiet as the voices sing Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdom of this world. And then it builds and builds and builds. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And if you know that song, you're almost wanting to sing with me, but we won't do that because it wouldn't sound very good. But it gets pretty amazing after that. And what, it, what was it in this text that gave Handel such hope and such inspiration in such dark times? Well, it's the very thing that is to be our hope. It's the hope to which we are to cling as we face hard times. It's the hope that should be ours as we face even the end of our lives, even as we face the end of the world and the day of judgment. So we're continuing our study through the book of Revelation, and Revelation is mainly about how Jesus is king. He reigns now, and he wins, and his people will share in his victory. And we've seen that Revelation is structured by these series of sevens that all look at the same time of history, but from different perspectives. So they each describe this age between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. The seven letters to the seven churches help us see what it means to live faithfully as people who belong to Christ during this age of tribulation. The seven seals of the scroll describe some of the difficulty the church will face during this age of tribulation. The seven trumpets reveal the varieties of God's just wrath on an unbelieving world all as part of his promise to deliver his people as he calls the world to repent. And just like there was a pause between the sixth and seventh seals, there's also a pause between the sixth and seventh trumpets. And both pauses were about God keeping his people no matter the challenges they face. And now finally, just as God's promised, we get to the vision of this seventh trumpet. And this vision of the seven trumpet truly is a vision of the future and what will certainly occur and come to pass. So I just want to remember if the reality described in this vision is true, you want to be ready for this. If the reality described in this vision is true, all other moments will look very, very small compared to this. In fact, all other moments lead up to this one great moment. And if you are ready for this moment in the seventh trumpet, the reality of it can be your great unfailing hope through any situation. So I want to see three main things with you this morning from this text. And number one, we want to see what the seventh trumpet says God will do. We're going to see God act kind of in three parts. So first, what God will do. Then second, we'll see what the seventh trumpet says about what God's people will do. What will occur in his people, what, how they will respond. And third, then we'll think a little bit about what we ought to do now 
in light of that reality. So what God will do in three parts, what God's people will do, what we can do now. So let's start with this first point, and it'll be the one that we give the most of our time to. We see in verse 15, the seventh angel blows his trumpet. There's loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So we wonder, what does it mean that the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord? These are big themes. First question, what is the kingdom of the world? Well, first we realize the idea of a kingdom, it's about really who or what has power, right? In a kingdom, you're talking about the major influence or the dominating authority. So in our modern times, we're kind of down on the idea of a king. We're down on the idea of authority. But that doesn't mean there's no kingdom of this world. Notice this word kingdom is singular. It's something evidently that all the kingdoms of history seem to have as an underlying theme. They have this in common. What is this kingdom of this world? Well, this makes us want to back up all the way, really, to the beginning of the biblical story of the world. Uh, Biblically speaking, uh, a good and beautiful and holy God created this world and designed it to thrive under his beneficent, generous reign. And Adam and Eve were made in God's image to represent him and, and rule as king and queen on earth. They were to be royal priests, to rule his creation in his name, to rule like him and for him. And by design, that was going to be oh so good. But we know that Satan came in Genesis 3 with his rebellion and his deception. He tempted them, he lied to them, and they believed his lie, the lie that God's not good, his word's not true, and therefore he's to be replaced. And part of this temptation was, hey, make your own kingdom apart from God. You be king. And so in believing him, they handed him the keys to their kingdom. Sin entered the world. We fell and fell hard with Satan's influence now being predominant. Later in scripture, Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. So you see the idea of his usurpation, uh, his false reign. Look how Paul describes Christians before they turn to Jesus in Ephesians chapter 2. Description of Christians before they turn to Jesus. This is Ephesians chapter 2, look at verses 1 to 3. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, and pay attention here, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I realize there's a lot here, but let's pick up on a few things. Did you see this repetition of following, following? We were following the course of this world. 
We're following the prince of the power of the air. Do you see it? We're following a kingdom. We're following a kingdom. And the issue of the kingdom here is one of the heart's desires. We're following the passions of our flesh. And here these are self-oriented, idolatrous desires, ways we replace God. It's the result, really, of believing that lie. So we love the wrong things in the wrong ways. And with that, we destroy ourselves and others. It's ugly. It brings God's wrath. So you see these ideas of the kingdom of the world. It's this heart of rebellion against God. Uh, John, the author of Revelation, has a lot to say about the world in his letter we call 1 John. Look at 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. 1 John 2, 15 to 17, there John writes, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we see here the kingdom, is again, is about what you love. Do you love the world or do you love the Father? And when John's talking about the world, he's not necessarily talking about the, the beauty of God's creation or this planet or wonderful things God has made. No, it was, it was a kind of desires there, right? It's like worldism. The world here, John says, was about the desires of the flesh. It's that inward bent towards self, self-rule, self-reign. It's where, you know, the heart says, I define not God what's good to love and how I will love it and how I will live. And then there's the desires of the eyes. So we see something and long for it according to a warped value system. God and his reign is rejected. And we're interpreting things according to our own evil desires. We long for them. We serve them, the desires of the eyes. And if the first two desires are things we long for that we don't have, the third one John mentions, pride in what we do have, the boastful pride of life, pride of possessions or what we've accomplished, kind of the self-exalting pride based on what we've done or accumulated. It could be money, material things, religious deeds we have performed, ways we're better than others. It's all in this kingdom of the world. John says the world is passing away. It's a bad investment for your heart. And here in the seventh trumpet, we meet its end. So what is the kingdom of the world? It's this combined human system, really even satanically inspired in deception and in rebellion against God. But what we do need to realize here is that there's always a kingdom and you need to realize your heart has a king. There, there's a vacuum here. No one is kingless. Um, there are things you love and follow and serve and bow before. And so the question is not if you have a king. The question is who or what is your king? What kingdom do you belong to? So the kingdom of this world is the combined human system in rebellion against God but that's not the end of the story. Throughout the biblical storyline, the prophets, through the prophets, God is saying God's king will come. God will reestablish his reign on earth, reclaim what his 
through his promised king. And so Jesus comes. We meet Jesus in the gospels. And in the book of Matthew chapter three, Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus is saying, turn from that false kingdom, turn to me as king because I'm God's king and here I am. I'm right here right now. And so he teaches God's truth. He performs countless miracles of healing, showing the beautiful renewal the coming kingdom would bring. He changes hearts. So now for people who belong to Christ, he's the new dominating authority, and we love that. For his people, he is the one we love. We have these new desires, hopefully, that are seen in new lifestyles. Read the Sermon on the Mount about the kingdom ethic, the love, the grace, the humility, the righteousness we ought to show as a result of having Jesus as our king. And so we see that in Christ, the kingdom has come. Legitimately, it's here now, but also not in fullness, so obviously not in fullness. And you know, Jesus said both. He could say, the kingdom is here now, and then when he teaches his people to pray, what's one thing we're supposed to pray for? Our Father in heaven, your kingdom come. You see, it's begun, it's real, it's here, but it's not finished. It's not matured, it's not complete. So we're praying that it would come all the way. And so there's this really important reality we need to understand. We live in the already, but not yet. The kingdom has come, it's started, eternity has begun, but it's not finished, it's not complete, it's not fulfilled. And we see this in our lives today. I mean, I just think about my own heart. There's no question Jesus has changed my heart, but it still has dark spots. Is Jesus king in my life? I hope I can say, yes, yes, he is, but does he need to be more deeply king of all of my life? Yeah, I need to be further changed, further submitted to my king. Uh, my life has been changed by Jesus, having him as my king, but it's, it's not finished. I'm saved, but my salvation isn't complete yet. You know, the coming of Jesus, the reality of his church, it's real. It's influenced the world deeply, but we're still broken. There's a long way to go. The kingdom has come, it's begun, we live in the already, but not yet, it's not finished. And then here's the hope. When this seventh trumpet blows, Jesus returns and the work is completed. The kingdom of this world will become explicitly, plainly, clearly the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he'll reign forever and ever. This is all our hope right here. In the return of Jesus, God will claim what's rightfully his, no more rebellion, no more corruption, no more brokenness, and things will be as they were meant to be. So good, so beautiful. God's people will be glorified. This world will be remade, renewed, and God will do all of this through his king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, the new and ultimate Adam who never failed. Jesus, the ultimate David, God's promised king. When he returns, he'll reign forever and ever. And now as we turn on Handel's Messiah and we sing with it. There's two other things that occur as God brings his kingdom. We see this in verse 18. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and then for the destroying 
destroyers of the earth. We remember that Revelation is absolutely packed, isn't it, with imagery from the Old Testament. And that's, again, the case here. Uh, as always, we're seeing the, complete, the completion of the Old Testament and all its promises in the reign of Jesus Christ. And here we have a reference very plainly to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. So I want to I wanna ponder some things from that psalm with you. Psalm 2, verses 1 to 3, reads like this. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And so we see the psalmist writing of how the kings and powers of the earth, they do not like the idea of God being king, and they reject God's promised king. And they say, let's break out. We will rule instead. We'll dethrone him. And as they rebel, they become destroyers. You know, God's reign builds up those who submit to it. His ways are good, they're life, they're just. When we rebel against God's ways, we become destroyers, we corrupt, we twist. What does God do in the face of this rebellion in Psalm 2? According to verses 4 to 6, what God does is he laughs. Psalm 2, 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So this is God laughing, but it's not a jovial laugh. It's a laugh of certainty in his answering of their challenge. He's saying the world is mine and I will have my kingdom. Obviously, the idea that someone could successfully thwart the reign of God over all his creation, well, that's rather a joke. God laughs in Psalm 2 because he laughs last. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords, like Philippians says. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is lord of the glory of the Father. The question is not whether every knee will bow. The question is whether you will enjoy the experience. So in Revelation 11, then, this fulfillment of Psalm 2, the judgment comes and the destroyers of, will be destroyed. The time comes in this trumpet for the dead to be judged. And this is amazing biblical promise that we'll each stand before the risen Christ and answer for how we've lived, and we're told that pure justice will be done. It's intimidating, but by the way, it's our only hope for any true justice from this broken world. And in this moment, in this, in this time, all information will be perfectly known, every thought, word, and deed measured perfectly, responded to appropriately, perfect, pure justice from Jesus Christ, who alone can bring it, and the punishment will fit the crime. The destroyers will be destroyed." That's part of the kingdom of this world, becoming the kingdom of our Lord. He must reign, the Bible says, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So it's very important to note that Psalm 2 ends with some crucial advice. Look at Psalm 2, verses 10 to 12. The psalmist writes, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear 
and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So you see these amazing combinations of the proper response to the reality of God's king. A wise response, a humble response would be to come to this king with fear. And then you have this beautiful picture of rejoicing with trembling. It's going together. It's, it, you're invited to take refuge in the king, to no longer rebel, to come and show your homage, bow your knee, kiss the sun, take refuge in him. You'll be blessed. You'll be taken care of. You'll be happy. You'll be satisfied. And that takes us to the second thing God will do as he brings his kingdom. So he comes and he will make the kingdom his own. He will destroy the destroyers, but he will also reward those who fear him. Revelation 11 is definitely using Psalm 2, as you see that uh, in verse 18 again, Revelation 11, 18, the time for the dead to be judged. And then the verse says, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great. I think we see here that this fear is a picture of faith, genuine faith. This fear takes very seriously who God is, eternal, powerful, holy, glorious, the king. And this fear takes very seriously who we are, I'm a created being. I'm dependent. I'm responsible to the king. I'm also a sinner. I have rebelled against God's reign. I have loved this world. I need to be forgiven. So what do I do in the light of this king and his return? I fear, but that fear doesn't mean I run from God in terror. Oh, no. This fear means you run to him. You take refuge in him. And as you do that, you are able to rejoice in your trembling. You're able to know that you'll be blessed. This is a happy fear. Why? Because fear trusts in the king. Friends, this king, this king Jesus is the king who came for you. He took on flesh to save sinners and bring the unworthy into his kingdom. This is the king who stood for you. He lived the perfect life you need on your account, and he will give it to you through faith in him. God will account you just, righteous, innocent through the lens of what Jesus has done. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He earned your forgiveness. He paid the price you deserve for your rebellion against him. And the king won the victory for you. He rose from the dead. So we want to take refuge in him, trust him. And then as a result of that, of the result of belonging to him by grace through faith, we then want to live fearfully for the king. Did you see we were called servants, prophets, and saints, those who fear your name, small and great. When Jesus saves us, we want to live for him. We we want to speak for him. We want to be holy for and like him. Uh, We want to live for his glory. And and all of us are included. I love this phrase, small and great. That, That means there's room for you. There's room for me. He's going to reward 
those who fear him. He's going to give you his kingdom. This is the third thing that is part of God bringing his kingdom. Those who fear the Lord will be rewarded. It's not a reward of works that you've earned so much as a reward of the inheritance you've been given. It's for all God's people. Uh, we, we saw this in Jesus' promises to his people in the letters to the churches. Look at Revelation 3, 21. Jesus says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. God will bring his kingdom and do it through Jesus Christ. The kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord. The destroyers will be destroyed. All enemies will be answered and defeated and God's people who fear him will be rewarded and will inherit the kingdom. That's what's coming. That's what God will do. Now, what do we do? We'll see this, or excuse me, what will we do? That's the question. What will we do when this trumpet blows? We see this in verses 16 to 17. Verse 16, the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. I love this picture of what we will do. Um, you know, maybe when I ask, what's that question? What, what will we do? You, you had this idea of a burden or you had this idea of this massive thing you need to accomplish and, and really you see in this trumpet what we do. You know what we do? We praise God with thanksgiving. That's what we do. We praise God with thanksgiving. In Revelation, the 24 elders, I think, represent all God's people throughout history, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. And so they're example to us. They represent us. And we see them just overcome with thankful praise. They're falling on their faces. Oh, to see something that blows us away to that, to that measure where we fall on our faces. And, and the way that your, your translation puts it together, you see this is like a poem. Do you see the way it's, it's put there in your Bible? It's, it's like a song. They begin to give God praise. What is praise? Praise is the most common human experience when it comes to our joy. Praise is the expression of joy that comes from encountering the beautiful. We see something beautiful, we're moved by it, we express it to and with one another. It's at the heights of our happiness. And this is thankful praise, which takes it even to the next level. What is gratitude? It's that unique kind of praise as you experience uh, as, as you realize you've experienced something beautiful at another's expense, someone else paid the price, someone else brought you near. And so as God's people realize that Jesus paid the cost for us to inherit his kingdom and that God has come for us in his faithfulness and by his grace, and we, we're so thankful. We erupt in thankful praise it's interesting to me, there's this repeated theme in Revelation 1 to 4. God over and again is called the one who was, the one who, or the one who is, the one and was and is to come. The one who is and was and is, become, is to come. And here it's a little different. It says, we praise the one who is and who was, and then there's no is to come. Why? Because in this vision, he has come. He has come. 
He's here. He's come for us. He's begun to reign. And our great hope has come true. And I realize this can be hard for us to imagine in the struggles of our moment right now. We live in the already but not yet, and sometimes the not yet feels a lot bigger than the already. But this is the promise. When this seventh seventh trumpet blows, if you're one of God's people through Jesus Christ, you will be overcome. And the one main thing that you can do is erupt in thankful praise. You'll be full of wonder. You'll be full of joy. You'll be satisfied. Deeply, deeply satisfied because we will praise him in his presence. In verse 19, it says, God's temple in heaven was opened. The ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. You know, here's all the answers to all those crazy movies. Where's the ark? Oh, uh, it's up in God's presence. Here it is, it's seen. What does that mean? Well, these were both things that were off limits in some ways to God's people that represented his presence. And now it's open. Now it's seen. And so it's the idea that we are brought near. It's overwhelming. We praise him in his presence. He's come for us. Awesome. So with Revelation eleven nineteen, we come to the end of this massive set of visions that began all the way back in chapter 4. Chapter 4 started with lightnings, rumblings, and thunder. All the way at the end of Revelation, it ends that way, lightning, rumblings, and thunder. And so we've seen throughout these chapters, Jesus has opened the seals. He's the only one who's worthy. Jesus has called for the trumpets. He's in control. Jesus is king. He reigns now, and he's going to come back. In the seventh trumpet, he comes back to renew all things, reign explicitly forever. So what will God do? God will reclaim his kingdom, the kingdom of this world, through Jesus Christ as he destroys the destroyers and rewards his people who fear him. What will we do? We will rejoice with thankful praise in his presence. So what should we do today in the light of this great moment that is coming? Well, number one, take refuge in the true king. Take refuge in the true king. You do not want the seventh trumpet to blow and be caught not having Jesus as your king. You do not want to be considered one of the destroyers. You do not want to answer for your own sins. And so the first call of this text, the call of Psalm 2 is take refuge in the true king. Look to Jesus Christ. There's no one like him, no one more just, more holy, more kind, more gracious. Look to his perfect life that can stand for you in your stead. Look to his death that can stand for you, paying the debt you owe. Look to his resurrection. He is the victorious king. Trust yourself to him. Bow the knee of your heart to him. Take refuge in the true king. Ask yourself this morning, is Jesus my king? That's the first thing to do today. Second, hope in his return and live in the light of that hope. Hope in his return and live in the light of that hope. 
I want to take you to what the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. 1 Peter 1, 13, Peter writes this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Just pause there for a moment. This is our hope. This is the only hope that won't let you down. This is the hope that will keep you during hard times. This is the hope that will be enough for you on your very deathbed. This is the hope that will be good for you at the at the end of the world when Jesus returns. Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus comes back as he rewards his people, gives them the kingdom, hope in his return. Verse 14, live in the light of it. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Uh, just remember, doesn't that sound like the world? Remember, the kingdom of the world, our dark passions? Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We want to hope in Jesus' return and live for him in the power of that hope. So what should we do today? Take refuge in the true king, hope in his return and live in the light of it. And then third, because of the beauty and certainty of this hope, join in thankful praise. Let your heart join and cry out in thankful praise. You know, the last major piece of Handel's Messiah is titled, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. It's just fascinating to see in this dark time of Handel's life, this glorious praise sprang forth due to the reality of the beauty of Jesus and his promises. Let yourself meditate on the beauty of what's coming for you at the seventh trumpet. Let yourself ponder the reality that you will sing in the presence of God, that you will inherit his kingdom. Cultivate your heart to cry out to God with thankful praise to our king, the one who came for us, died for us, rose for us, reigns for us, will one day return for us. In Revelation 7, the saints were described like this. Revelation 7, 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is our hope. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your great promises. And Lord, we realize your very hunger to keep them. You've written a story and you will finish the story, uh, and it will be completed. 
when you reclaim what is yours and Jesus Christ reigns forever and ever to your glory. Lord, uh, let our hearts be anchored in this promise. Let your return be our great fundamental hope. Uh, Lord, let that move us to trust Christ. Let it move us to hope in you and live holy lives in the light of that hope. And let it show itself in thankful praise. We live in the already but not yet. And we pray that the not yet would invade our already. Um, As we love you, as we praise you, we take our joy in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.